Welcome to the Energy Council Podcast Investor Series. Hey guys, welcome to the Energy Council's Investor Series Podcast. I'm your host, Ben West, and today I am joined by Asha Mehta, Managing Partner and CIO at Global Delta Capital. During the episode, Asha talks about Global Delta Capital's quantitative approach to emerging markets and shares her experiences of being the first quantitative manager to become a signatory of the PRI. She also talks about how investors can leverage big data to drive change and impact, and how to identify the relevant data to develop data dashboards to provide investors with a clear understanding of the average weighted carbon intensity of assets across their portfolio, and help them to map out their trajectory to net zero. Hope you guys enjoy. Hi, Asha. Thanks very much for doing this today. It's great to have you on. Hi, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. No, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today. I like to I usually like to start things off on a more personal note and with a bit of background to set the scene. So just to kick us off, it'd be great if you could give us some context around where did you grow up? What did you study and where? Uh, where did your interest in the energy industry originate and, and how did you get into the, into the industry? Just take us through your journey up until founding Global Delta Capital back in 2020. Thanks, Ben. Um, it's always fun to start here. Happy to give you a little context on my formative years, how I got into the industry and, and what led me to found Global Delta, a new investment venture that's underway. I grew up in the south of the U.S. I grew up in Gainesville, Florida, university town. My parents were both academic professors in medicine. Grew up in a cross-cultural family. Both my parents had refugee heritages. My father's family was from India, and they had left part- left Pakistan during partition. My mother's family moved to the U.S. from Europe during World War II. And I was, as a child, uh, both entranced by their cultures and also sort of haunted by their histories And again, that was kind of a formative background to have as I started my career. I did my undergrad at Stanford. I studied biology and anthropology. I thought I was going to be a doctor just like my parents. And one of my sort of key epiphanies in life, what led me ultimately to pursue the career path that I have, was I went on a rural health project while I was in college to India. I went on my own. And and again, it was in the healthcare space. But when I reached my destination, was walking around the ground, It hit me as I looked around at the poverty and the lack of development around me that what these people needed most was not really health so much as wealth. And and that's what led me to launch a career in investments. I went back to Stanford, looked for my first job out of college. It was 2000, heart of the dot-com boom. I was in the Bay Area. Most of my friends wanted to stay in Silicon Valley. But again, I was looking for the investment industry. I looked at New York City. I got an offer from Goldman Sachs. And in 2000, I joined the Energy and Power Group. It was a fascinating place to land at a fascinating time. On the energy side, I worked on pipeline deals, M&A throughout international markets. From Canada, I was in the U.S. The first transaction that I came across was the ExxonMobil merger. I also did deals in the Middle East and in Latin America. On the power side, it was a phenomenal time in U.S. history. Power industry was just going through its deregulation phase. And there was tremendous innovation coming out in the U.S. I worked on a series of IPOs and SEO, secondary equity offerings as well. 9-11 hit. I moved down to Philly and I was commuting up to New York. And again, during sort of these formative years and in a vulnerable state on that train ride on the Amtrak, back and forth between Philly and New York, I was reading Daniel Jurgen's The Prize, which really shaped and sealed my worldview that the world's most important resource is energy. 
So, so that was sort of my background. I was fascinated by the global side of this in particular. And I soon joined an investment firm in Boston that allowed me to invest in emerging markets, which of course has high energy exposure. In the time that I was there, I spent about 15 years of my career there. I was either managing or co-managing large pools of emerging market and frontier market assets. I worked on the first institutional frontier fund. I launched one of the earliest onshore China A funds. And I was doing this through the lens of quantitative investing. I was really lured by the opportunity to apply innovative technology to identify market inefficiencies and generate alpha. And the other major sort of development that happened in the time that I was with that shop was the rise of the sustainability movement. Again, I looked at sustainability through the same lens that I had looked at all of my other um, transitions or, or sort of experiences. You know, where is the alpha here? Where is the opportunity to innovate? And where is the opportunity to deliver both returns and impact? I brought my former shop, Acadian, to become the first quant manager to sign the Principles for Responsible Investing. That was back in 2009. Of course, the PRI now oversees over a trillion dollars in assets. A couple of years ago, I really saw myself sitting at the junction of emerging markets, systematic finance, and sustainability. And I thought I can build a business around this, one that's not only alpha generative, but also impactful. So that's what led me to build Global Delta Capital. Brilliant. Thanks, Asher. And I, th I think that gives us plenty to delve into over the course of the episode. But before we dive into the deep end, um, I, know, I know you'll be releasing a book in a couple of months, The the Power of Capital. Do you want to talk us through that a little bit and, and just explain what it will cover? Again, I'm sure it will set the scene nicely for our conversation and give us plenty to dive into. So over to you. Power of Capital. It was inspired by Jim Rogers' adventure capitalist that some of your listeners may remember from a couple of decades ago. The book is, is really an analog of my trip notes from traveling the globe. I take readers on a journey from China to India to Saudi Arabia, throughout the Eastern Europe, across the, the African continent and into Latin America. Talk about where I see opportunities in the emerging markets. I share insights from talking to ministers of finance and heads of state, all the way to what I consider my most credible sources to be shopkeepers and taxi cab drivers. Conversations produce good humor, but I think is also valuable to investors and business people and, and individuals interested in geopolitics who are looking to learn more about business dynamics and today's geopolitical forces. The key themes of the book to what I see as the mega themes that are reshaping the industry. Uh, one is technology, of course, which has enabled emerging markets to leapfrog to to the present. The second mega theme is, is globalization. Despite the West turning protectionist and China turning isolationist during COVID, fundamentally we live in a global world today. And number three, the title itself, Power of Capital, it speaks to the power center of investments. And I think a theme we'll come back to later today, the rising role of shareholders in global governance and how capital is used as a tool today. Again, as I said previously, not just to generate a return, but to build an ecosystem. Brilliant. Thanks, Asher. I think I'm going to definitely have to to give that a go and, and delve into it myself. Um, but again, just just continuing along that line of, of setting the, the theme and sort of providing some context for listeners who, who may not be so familiar with yourself and Global Delta Capital, are you able just to give us an overview of the firm? So I know you take a quantitative approach to emerging markets and that you're, a, as you mentioned, the first quantitative manager to become a signatory of the PRI. Therefore, it would just be good to get a bit more background behind your team's current exposure, portfolio breakdown, geographical focus, energy strategy, and 
mission focus, etc. If, if you could just provide a little bit of context around that. Of course, we're building a boutique approach to investing in emerging markets, as you said, Ben, through systematic investing. We see emerging markets as being in the sweet spot of their development, where institutional hurdles have been removed from accessing the asset class. Liquidity is there today. Data access is there today. It is a large market in a mainstream allocation area for most investors. However, there is still considerable mystery and fear, concerns about the risk profile of emerging markets. So what that means is that we see structural under allocations of investors to emerging markets. So we see significant flows moving into the asset class. Emerging markets have no doubt come to the forefront. They dominate headlines today. And some of the largest and most innovative companies around the world come from this space. So again, we see the flow of funds into the asset class. We see opportunity for investors to have exposure here. But because of those structural inefficiencies I mentioned, we also see outsized opportunity for alpha generation within the asset class. And in terms of positioning, we're invested across the cap spectrum. So think of us as an all cap manager. But because we use quantitative approaches, we can cover the full universe of securities. We have exposures of, to large caps, but we see particular inefficiency in the small cap and mid cap space. So we probably have more exposure to small and mid caps than most of our peers. In terms of regional allocations, think of us as a global emerging markets manager. We like the consumer sector in Latin America. In Africa, we have exposure to resources, including some innovative resource companies, but also in the fintech space, we're seeing meaningful innovations. Eastern Europe is an emerging source of technology. The Middle East is a market that I've been bullish on for a long time, not only given the diversification of fuels within the space, but also the liberalization of, of the market broadly. And then Asia, you know, the deepest and broadest markets, we have significant exposure. This is also the area of the globe where we see the strongest growth opportunities. In terms of sector exposures, again, we're broadly diversified, about half of our portfolio exposed to what I consider the older economy sectors and about half exposed to newer economy sectors like technology, healthcare, new energy. We do see energy broadly as an important area for investment. While we are positioned relative to the lower carbon economy, we do take a pragmatic approach to decarbonization. We see energy exposure as not only a significant area for return generation, but even from the sustainability side, we see the importance for the countries we're invested in to have energy independence, to be protected from energy inflation. And again, we're, we're looking for innovation across the globe, given kind of the structural growth themes and there is meaningful energy innovation coming, again, not just in Asia, but from Africa and other regions as well. That's really helpful and, and provides some some good context to take this forward. And I know when we've spoken in the past, you mentioned that you're working on launching a fund. I mean, would you be happy just to run us through that and share more about the fund strategy and objectives? Of course. Again, as I've said before, our strategy use, utilizes a systematic approach to invest in emerging markets. Our philosophy is consistent with the themes you and I have already discussed today. As a firm, what we're looking to do is use the power of capital to generate a return and to build a sustainable future. And we think that using a systematic approach is a uniquely powerful tool in the emerging markets. Data, as I said previously, has grown tremendously over the past decade. 
and access to data today is not as much of a problem in emerging markets as making sense of the data, identifying signal from the noise. Emerging markets also, like I said before, has matured and is a distinct asset class from the developed markets. Within emerging markets, of course, the region is heterogeneous. So we see trading U.S. as a very different experience than trading in China. And trading in China is very different from investing in Nigeria. So we're using systematic tools to really differentiate within emerging markets and to differentiate emerging markets from other asset classes. We do this through a systematic approach, which gives us uh, tremendous benefits relative to a traditional fundamental strategy, where a systematic approach offers us the benefits of breadth. We can cover many, many more stocks and many more countries than a fundamental analyst, given that we're using the power of technology. We can use a multi-factor approach using systematic tools. When I'm covering a stock, I can cover not only what are the growth aspects of that company, you know, how well positioned is the management team to achieve that growth, how strong are their financial statements to support the growth, but also is the stock undervalued. Of course, I can do this for every single stock within my universe, over a 10,000 stock universe. And I can think not only of all these details of all my companies, but also the macro environment, the transaction cost to trade that security, et cetera. One last point on sort of the benefits of using a data-driven systematic approach in emerging market is that it affords us the benefit of discipline. We know when there is a euphoric market that this is a time to sell. And in markets where there is metaphorical you know, blood on the streets, we can use the power of technology to identify a buying opportunity. I will say in my book, I talk about why I recommend not buying when there's actual blood on the streets. That's where we draw a line and start to consider markets to be uninvestable. Brilliant. Thank, thanks, Asha. And I think you've probably drawn on a, a lot of themes that, that I want to touch on in, in my next uh, question, which is around data. And I know that you sit in the junction of big data, as you alluded to there, and, and obviously leveraging um, big data to drive change and, and drive impact. I mean, something we've been doing a heck of a lot of work with and investors across our network throughout the course of this year so far is around developing data dashboards to provide investors with a clear understanding of, for example, the weighted carbon intensity of assets across their portfolio and to help them to map out their trajectory to, to net zero and how they support portfolio companies or stocks that they're invested in, in, in making this transition. I mean, are you able to just I guess, develop on some of the comments you made there and delve into a bit more detail about how you're using big data to drive change and, and really drive impact in the markets that you're investing in. That's terrific, Ben. Thank you. I'm so glad to hear about the work you're doing with the Energy Council in, in terms of making use of the data that exists today to drive meaningful understandings of positioning and meaningful impact. So sure, I'm happy to give you a couple of views from my perspective on the state of data in the industry today as well as how that data can be used to drive impact. I'm, I've often heard the term that data is the new oil and that today data makes the world go round. And I think that's true in many ways. The state of data in the sustainability space, as we talk about net zero transitions, has certainly come a very long way. I started looking at sustainability-based data sets probably on the order of 15 years ago. And just to give you an idea of how far these data sets have come, Back then, there was literally no notion of materiality. So I'd look at data sets from data vendors and they'd show me you know, the, the issues they're covering and, and how they're covering it. I would see, call it hundreds of data items, lots of NA values because the, you know, the disclosures weren't there from companies and all of these various issues, again, hundreds of data items, approximately equal weighted. 
And what we're seeing today is that there has been a sea change. There's significantly more disclosures today. There's much more breadth. There's much more depth. 15 years has passed. So of course, there's much more history as well. And in many ways, I find the struggle in the sustainability industry is not about having too little data, but actually having too much data. And so the challenge is, how do we make sense of this data? How do we structure the data? How do we work through the asymmetries that exist in unlocking alpha utilizing this data? And this is where I see systematic tools as being particularly well-suited to working with unstructured data sets that come from the sustainability space. In terms of how we're using the data, we use it in a couple ways. I've talked about you know, this notion of using the power of capital to not only generate returns, but also to drive impact through our investments. We are using the data sets within our systems in, in three ways to drive some level of impact. One is through capital allocation. I often hear that using capital allocation or, or using the public equity markets as a way to drive impact is a relatively low impact strategy. And that may be true across developed markets broadly, but in emerging markets, and particularly in small and mid caps where we're investing, capital access is a significant form of impact. These do tend to be companies that are starved for capital and that are looking for liquidity. So by identifying signals in those data sets that are predictive of returns, we can identify companies that are exhibiting best practices, take exposure to those companies, and in effect, be a capital allocator to those companies. In addition, we're using data to inform our stewardship practices. And I think this is a very important development, not only within the energy industry, but across sectors over the last decade or so, the role of increased collaboration between corporates and investors. We are using data to inform where we can have an outsized role on the stewardship side. And then finally, you know, consistent with your points earlier, Ben, we're using data as well in our own reporting so that we can show to our clients what are our exposures how is their capital allocated relative to carbon assets? And how is their capital being utilized to enact some level of impact? I think across all levels, capital allocation, stewardship, and reporting, the investment industry can play a significant role utilizing data to deliver impact. I think it's consistent with a number of conversations that, that we're having right across the board. And I think, as, as you say, quite rightly, it's there's so much data out there. It's not a case of where to find the data from, but actually how to narrow it down and, and understand what mm -hmm. data actually matters. But, but staying on this topic of data and, and just building on some of the latter points you made there, I mean, I often speak with investors about climate risk, naturally, with the focus we have on, on the energy sector and how climate risk is often underpriced and, and not widely recognized in the market. I mean, how do we account for climate risk in terms of bigger portfolios, our bigger portfolios as as asset, man as, as asset managers um, and investors in the industry? I agree strongly, Ben. I, we see climate risk as not only undervalued, but also mischaracterized across the industry. And that's because it is complex. Ultimately, we focus on the two risks that likely your listeners are already aware of, both physical risk as well as transition risk. And on the physical risk side, we define this as both chronic risk that exists in the form of rising sea levels, drought, rising temperatures, as well as more acute risks like floods and hurricanes, fires and heat waves. And of course, we see humanitarian aspects to these types of effects. But in the context of investments, we also see very significant economic consequences. Just recently, there was an 11-week 
heat wave in southwestern China, and it caused factories owned by global companies to shut down for a meaningful period of time. Foxconn, Toyota, Volkswagen. Not only is this isn't only a China specific theme, it's a global theme. And as I just indicated, it also hits across industries. It's not just an energy sector theme, but it impacts healthcare, agriculture, the breadth of, of investable sectors. So how do we account for this in portfolios? Uh, we do look at these types of events as tail risk events. There is a long left tail and these events are relatively unlikely, but they are more probable than we believe most investors price them to be. So we can account for these risks by identifying where are assets more vulnerable with respect to, to climate related events. On the transition risk side, similarly and very importantly, we believe that this is a risk that's underappreciated by the market and that given the improvements in data today, there are significant actions that can be taken. And this is likely somewhat consistent with many of you know, the, the investors you speak with. We see both opportunity and risk within the transition. On the opportunity side, we are seeing clear opportunities to diversify energy resources, and we're seeing the benefits of increasing breadth of resource types within the supply chain. So as an investor, that's creating opportunity, again, across sectors. On the risk side, we're seeing various policies and regulations like a carbon tax, which can be enforced by government mechanisms or by market mechanisms that we anticipate grows in the coming years. Thanks, Asha. And, and I'll come on to, to your comments on sort of carbon risk and, and carbon markets shortly. But before we do, I think just I just want to come back to a comment you made earlier, which um, which resonated with me, which I quite like. It was around data being the new oil. Mm -hmm. and, and I think a lot of obviously there's a lot of conversation and speculation around sort of approaching energy investment investments with a view to transitioning towards a low carbon economy. And obviously, you've just made a couple of comments around that specifically there. But I think there's often a perception among investors, particularly traditional energy investors, that sort of ESG investing or energy transition investing comes with there is financial sacrifice or compromise to be made there. Whereas often I I don't think that is necessarily the case if you, if you look at certain data studies. I mean, how do you approach energy investments with a view to transitioning towards a low carbon economy in a data informed way and, and importantly in a way that generates a return for investors because equally that's that's what drives capital right returns so so how would you so how, how do you respond to that of course of course so so any signal that's in our model and again we're systematic investors so model driven investors with underlying data sets informing our investments for any data set that's populated into our model and any signal that's invested accordingly it is held to the high standards of alpha so we won't invest capital in companies or in markets where we don't see a return opportunity. And to that end, where we've in implemented low carbon economy related transition or, or signals, we believe those are alpha generative. Those are consistent with the objectives of traditional investors who are focused on financial materiality. To your point, Ben, we've implemented signals in our model that are consistent with this notion of financial materiality. A couple sort of tangible examples. One way that we work with the energy industry in order to improve our data set so that we can make informed decisions, I alluded to this before. Before is through collaboration and the role of shareholder activism in today's environment as being very significant. It's not lost on me that companies have advanced significantly over the past decade in terms of being prepared for these conversations. And I've seen this benefit as wholly beneficial 
it's not lost on me again, that there has been a lot of resource allocation in this space. And I do think to your point, it's important when we engage with companies to focus on issues that are most, most financially material, because there is a cost to reporting on issues that aren't financially material. But as we've seen with the improvements of scope one and scope two emissions, and we're actually seeing improvements on the scope three as well, that's giving us data that we can better tune our signals and make better allocation decisions. So it speaks to a broad area of improved activism, improved responses from the corporations. TCFD is one reporting framework that we have found extremely beneficial and that we continue to report. In addition, we're, help, we're interested in understanding capital discipline of the companies we're investing in. We recognize that there are literally trillions of dollars sloshing around in support of the low carbon economy. And given that large energy companies today are cash rich, we find that it's an exciting time for leaders in the industry to adopt cleaner solutions. We agree with some of the reports that we've seen from the Energy Council that speak to the commitments of big oil and gas companies in supporting clean energy technology. Resonates with my own direct experience with BP and Shell and with Saudi Aramco and its IPO. We're seeing significant commitments. And again, that is alpha generative. That's, con that's consistent with the return mandate for investors and speaks to the transition to the low carbon economy. Brilliant. Thanks, Asha. And I just want to come back to your, your comments earlier on the carbon market. So I'd be interested to get your take there. Obviously, there's no carbon tax today, but there will be. How are investors assigning an implicit carbon tax on securities? And, and, and how are they penalizing companies that have a, a large carbon footprint? What, what impact could this have on energy stock valuations going forward? We believe that this notion of the carbon tax is quite tangible and very important. So I'm happy to answer this question and provide some perspectives. We actually believe that there is a carbon tax today. It's, it's not a global carbon tax, of course, and it's not a regulatory enf enforced mechanism. But what we are observing from the data is that there is an implicit price on carbon from investors. So either it's in place market by market in a regulatory fashion, or there are market-based mechanisms that can inform us on what the price of carbon is. And this is consistent, again, with a broader industry, with carbon-heavy industries taking action and really demonstrating that the change is real. Even with oil and gas prices where they are today, we are observing that oil and gas producers across the globe are reluctant to invest in new production capacity. Of course, this typically relates down to capital discipline. And we often also hear companies talk about the climate-related restrictions as one of the reasons why they're not beginning large-scale capital-intensive production projects today. So all of this speaks to the implicit carbon tax being real and tangible in today's environment. Specifically, studies show that a 10% reduction in carbon carbon emission leads to about a 50 basis points increase in valuation ratios. We believe that energy stock valuations over the near term are going to be caught between these forces around the growing carbon emissions discount, which today is based primarily on scope one and scope two emissions, but over time likely to extend to scope three. Of course, in the near term, we do expect that there is this transition period and that energy producers today are cutting back on investments in high carbon energy sources. And so that's going to lead to a shrinkage in the sector and over the nearest term, stable valuations, perhaps even increasing valuations still for the energy sector. So on balance, we're seeing this carbon tax in place, this implicit carbon tax. We believe that over the long term, 
investors are right to consider carbon emissions profiles of companies when assessing what is the valuation of those companies. And we anticipate that over the long term, the valuations of high carbon energy assets will shrink. And I say that, I say that carefully, right? The high carbon assets will shrink doesn't necessarily mean that overall integrated company valuations will shrink. Thanks, Sasha. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And look, I think there's a, a, a heck of a lot to sort of unpick there. And and we could speak about this for, for hours, I'm sure. But I'm, I'm mindful of time and, and keen to pick your brain on, on as many different topics as we can. So before we wrap it up, I, I've just got one more question to, to put to you. And it's around the work that you and many other energy investors are doing to launch a fund in the current environment. Obviously, I think I've had various conversations with investors across our network who've been in the process of raising new funds around the ethics involved with energy fundraising. And I wanted to ask you about investors' ability to raise new funds in light of heightened ESG pressures and spotlights. Obviously, I think the, the conversation has probably evolved significantly over the past six months. If we look at geopolitical developments, particularly obviously those in with the situation between Russia and Ukraine and the knock-on effect that's having on, on global markets, and also concerns around energy security, energy affordability, energy reliability. From your perspective and the work you've been doing in the market, are you, are you finding it more challenging to raise energy funds today than perhaps you might have done pre-pandemic? And, and sort of how receptive are LPs to emerging markets compared to developed markets and, and less risky economies like Europe and America, perhaps? We're clearly in a diff- very different part of the cycle today than the one we were in pre-pandemic, and, and that's in multiple fronts. And I think you've highlighted a lot of the significant themes that have, that have shifted over this period. Of course, here in the developed world, interest rates are rising fast. Investors are facing inflation that they literally have not seen in our generation. Broadly, cr- growth stocks continue to appear overvalued and risky today. And, and so there is risk aversion in today's market. On the flip side, in emerging markets, some markets today are actually outpacing developed markets. In this backdrop of raising rates globally and slowing growth globally, we are observing some contrarian investors who are asking, is this the right time? Is this the right time to start thinking about emerging markets broadly? Yes, I agree. It's a risk-off environment. But for investors who are looking for growth, emerging markets is actually starting to show as a compelling investment. The last decade, as most of your listeners are probably well aware, belongs to the developed markets. Emerging markets have been underperformers for the last decade. But today, they're showing steep valuation discounts and significant opportunity for mean reversion. From a corporate perspective, in emerging markets, we're seeing pronounced growth at the corporate level, which is a better predictor of stock returns than macro-level growth. And companies in emerging markets, they're accustomed to living in periods of austerity. Emerging market companies actually show one-third the leverage that developed markets do. I agree, like I said, risk-off environment, most investors sort of taking a pause and, and thinking about, is this the right time to put in capital? But for investors who are willing to be contrarian and who are looking for compelling buying opportunities, broadly emerging markets is showing that weakness has been priced in. On the energy side, I, I agree with you so strongly. Not only is this a fundamentally different environment, just given the prices of energy assets, but there's also been substantial backlash to the sustainability movement. So the way I tackle this, the way I sort of handle this dichotomy, my compass effectively, when we're investing in energy assets in emerging markets through a sustainability lens is really to focus on the common ground. And ultimately, the most important area as return-oriented investors to look at the financial risk. We're looking for a pragmatic approach to investing in the energy industry 
We don't advocate for divestment, but we do believe it's prudent to invest in a, toward the low carbon transition to account for the carbon tax that we previously talked through and to be very careful when looking at ESG data sets. Of course, no one can argue that governance doesn't matter. And considering companies, you know, sort of broad holistic positioning with respect to employees and supply chains and customers, no one can argue that that doesn't matter. That's B-School 101, that's Porter's Five Forces, you know, who are, who are the most critical players in a corporation's success. So for us, the way we're handling this issue is the same way we always have. We're looking at the data, we're going very, very granular, we're creating formulations ourselves, we're sorting out the signal from the noise, and we're implementing ESG measures that prove themselves to be return generative. So ultimately, couldn't agree more, this is a tough environment, but sophisticated and contrarian investors broadly are seeing opportunity in today's market. Brilliant. Thanks, Asha. I think, as I say, there's there's a lot more I'd like to unpick there, and, and I'm sure we could talk about this for hours to come, but I, I'm, I'm mindful of time. So we'll, we'll wrap it up there. But Asha, it's, it's been great speaking with you, and I obviously really appreciate you sharing your views on and your approach towards the industry. As I mentioned, we've only just scratched the surface today, but to wrap it up, I just want to hand it over to you for some closing comments to summarize what we've talked about share your views on on next steps for the industry um, and any sort of partnership opportunities or joint effort opportunities that you'd be interested in hearing about. And, and just to give a closing message to any of your industry peers listening in. Sure, sure. A couple comments all around. On, on the energy side, like I said, I came into this industry um, during a period of phenomenal innovation. And I think today's opportunity is even more pronounced so I, I, I perceive energy companies to become more innovative in their quest to not only generate returns for investors, but manage inflationary pressures in today's environment, protect jobs. And, and I think that's in everyone's benefit. On the investment industry, I am seeing increased focus on delivering the alpha. Yes, we can implement sustainability considerations, but it cannot come at a cost of the return profile. It cannot be concessionary. Ultimately, for the junction between the two, the energy industry and the investment industry, as I alluded to before, there have been countless examples of very powerful collaborative engagements. I think it's in the interest of both investors and corporates to continue engaging and really to reframe the stewardship framework away from sort of this activist white knight model and, and toward a framework that's much more collaborative in nature. So I welcome the opportunity to work with the Energy Council and any other groups on collaborative engagement. And may, maybe just as a um, closing thought, again, uh, I've sort of laid out my thesis that we can use the power of capital both to drive returns and drive impact and in a way that's not concessionary. For your listeners who are interested in learning more about my views on power of capital, I encourage you to pick up the book on Amazon. It does get a bit wonky in certain places, but even my my young kids enjoy the story and the adventure element to the book. And if you like the investment themes we've talked through, please check us out at globaldeltacapital.com. Again, we sit at the junction of emerging markets, the new energy sectors, systematic finance, and we welcome you in joining us on the investment journey ahead. Ben, thanks so much. Hey guys, thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to speak with Asha about any of the points that she has raised during today's episode, or if you would be interested in exploring potential partnership opportunities of Global Delta Capital, then please email me at benjamin.west at energycouncil.com. The Energy Council represents the most senior and influential network of energy executives and investors in the world. 
Throughout the year, we leverage our relationships and industry knowledge to facilitate introductions on behalf of our clients, to help them to place capital, buy and sell deals, and form new partnerships. If you're interested in learning more about the ways we can help your team by connecting you with executives like Asha, then please email me directly or visit our website at www.energycouncil.com. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network you think would enjoy them. Thanks, and see you next time.